Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, we give scene-by-scene analysis of the Warner Brothers films that are part of the DCEU. In this episode, we cover scenes 42 and 43 of Suicide Squad. These scenes are the final fights with Incubus and then Enchantress. This analysis was written by myself with Alessandro Maniscalco and Nick Begovich. So Diablo just broke free from the visions and walked down the stairs to confront Enchantress. She asks him how long he's been able to see, and he says, my whole life. So this confirms that it's actually a part of Diablo's powers that he was able to see the falsity of Enchantress's visions and break out of them. It might be a sort of godly sight that is related to his ability to tap into a godly or demonic energy. And the combination of sight and power is similar to the gate in the anime Full Metal Alchemist, in that whoever sees the gate is able to perform magical alchemy. But for Suicide Squad, we said last episode that it made sense to have Diablo be the one to break free, because thematically he had to own his past. But it also makes sense because it's part of his power set to be somewhat immune to her forced visions. This shows that he's the best equipped person to stand up to Enchantress and Incubus, which will of course be important in a few minutes. Diablo also tells Enchantress that she can't have the squad because these are my people. So Diablo's arc has now progressed to its conclusion. He was a person who had lost his family because of his abilities, and so he had retreated and withdrawn. Now he is a person who was the first to step out and come forward to face Enchantress. And now he has gained a new family and will use his abilities to defend them. He had accidentally killed his wife and children, but survived himself. Now he will purposefully sacrifice himself so that his new family may live. Some people criticized Diablo's moment here at the end because they didn't feel it had been earned for Diablo to call the squad his people or his new family. But having gone through the movie in detail like we've done with this podcast, I actually do think this moment was earned. It's true, he was often kind of withdrawn and not fully part of the team, but the important thing is that the squad never turned their back on him. They still included him, and eventually they all fought together. And especially near the end with the bar scene, they learned about his personal tragedy and didn't judge him for it, they stood with him. So even though it wasn't a long-standing new relationship, it was a meaningful one. And for a guy who was probably looking for an avenue toward redemption, I don't begrudge him at all, trying to find that redemption by declaring the squad his new friends and family. Back to Enchantress, she says, It is our time. The sun is setting and the magic rises. This use of the word our for our time, uh, it refers to her and Incubus, but it also seems to refer to Diablo. So she's including him as one of them, the old gods of magic. And if the magic is rising, that might be an allusion to some more magic characters in the DCEU in the future, such as Constantine and Zatanna and possibly Dr. Fate. We're guessing some of these magic characters are going to show up in the Justice League Dark movie that was a part of the announced slate from Warner Brothers. And Enchantress also says that the metahumans are a sign of change. So this suggests that Enchantress might be aware of something larger at play in the universe. And it also confirms why Man of Steel and then Batman v Superman, with the metahuman thesis, were the beginnings of this universe. Because those were the moments when the realistic universe began to change and see the rise of metahumans, and now the return of magic. Deadshot points at Enchantress and says, You are evil. This is pretty on the nose, but it connects to David Ayer's original premise that he wanted for this movie. He wanted it to be about bad versus evil, instead of the typical good versus bad. So it's another instance of this movie trying to be a bit more obvious than other movies, like Batman v Superman. And that's fine. Obvious is okay. 
The one thing I didn't like, though, was that to set up Deadshot's line, Enchantress wasn't really saying or doing anything especially evil right at that moment. Yes, she's done evil things before, like killing people to create her eyes of the adversary, but at this moment, she's just standing in front of her mysterious machine, and she's just saying that the magic is rising. It's not exactly her most evil moment, so it's a little bit weird for that to be the moment where she's called out as being evil. But anyway, before the fight gets underway, it does make it clear that the squad is composed of bad guys, but they aren't necessarily evil. They've just made the most with the hands that they were dealt. Whereas Enchantress has complete disregard for morality and man, with a desire to destroy them. Enchantress then calls to her brother in the ancient language and tells him to make them bow to me. This desire for worship does connect somewhat to the idea, back from when she was first releasing Incubus, that her motivation has to do with envy because people worship machines now. It's a bit muddled though, because there are a couple times where she says she wants worship, but overall she doesn't really give humanity many opportunities to worship her. She seems more like she's just going to destroy humanity. Uh, and it's also kind of ironic here that she wants the squad to bow before her when that actually does happen with Harley and that's how Enchantress is defeated. Another thing that doesn't make complete sense to us is that the team seems surprised when Incubus comes around the corner. And Boomerang even asks, who's this? But he was literally the one who threw the drone orang with the camera where they saw Incubus. And they even talked about taking out the big one first. So this guy, Incubus, is who they came to face. It shouldn't be a surprise when they see him there. Anyway, the team realizes they are overpowered, so they run and hide. Flag calls the SEALs to let them know that they are ready for the bomb to take out Incubus. But the SEALs are occupied by the eyes. This is where Killer Croc plays an important role, by taking care of the eyes and allowing the team to carry out their mission. Croc even does what looks like a crocodile death roll. Then we come back up top, and we get to see yet another of Captain Boomerang's boomerangs. This time, it's a bomberang of sorts. But it doesn't do much of anything to Incubus. Flag says they have to get Incubus to the far corner, and this draws upon Flag's prior knowledge as the one who was there earlier with Enchantress. Diablo says, I'll do it. I'll get him there. Interestingly, this is the same phrasing that Deadshot used with Diablo in scene 29, and it's the phrasing that Deadshot used in the bar scene with Flag. So that's at least three times where get him there or get you there was used as the phrasing, and they were all in crucial moments. So maybe that points to a notion of teamwork and people being able to rely on one another. There's a quick beat before we actually see Diablo confront an Incubus, and that quick beat is Incubus bearing down on Boomerang, and then Katana coming in to save his life. She cuts off Incubus's arm, and even though the arm grows back, it does show that Katana's sword is capable of doing damage to them, despite their godly nature. That will become important at the end with Harley Quinn. Katana saving Boomerang is also a nice conclusion to their flirtatious arc that goes back through several prior scenes, including just before this fight by the Pillars when Boomerang invited her for a drink, and there was also the moment way back when Boomerang and Slipknot tried to escape. So Katana has gone from being Flag's bodyguard and holding a sword up to Boomerang's neck to this moment now where she is protecting Boomerang and has more respect for the squad overall. Now we cut back to Diablo to see him head out for his confrontation with Incubus. He says, I lost one family, I'm not going to lose another. So this reiterates the point we were talking about already, um, with Diablo coming to the conclusion of his arc. But Deadshot doesn't know Diablo's full powers, so he's still worried about Diablo going out there. But Diablo says, let me show you who I really am. 
On the surface, this refers to the fact that he's about to show more of his powers, and he will reveal that he's not really human. But the idea of showing who I really am also connects to the movie's theme of accepting yourself. And it shows that, even though he has done bad things, those bad things are not really who he is. He still has worth and value as a people, even though he's done bad things. And this moment of heroism that's about to happen is a way to be redeemed from his past sins. Diablo starts with his standard fire attack, and then he gets kicked back by Incubus. There's some more poor editing here, though, um, because Diablo yells to Incubus over here to get Incubus's attention, but there's no shot of Incubus reacting or turning toward Diablo. It just seems like Incubus was already there looking right at Diablo, so it didn't flow good with the over here line. And it also had been clearly established that the axis for the 100 degree rule placed Incubus on the left side of the screen and Diablo on the right. And that's how it was for the fire and for the kick. But the editors cut across the line when Diablo crashes into the side room. So that Diablo was there flying from right to left on the screen when he should have been flying left to right. I know that some filmmakers will break the 180 degree rule on purpose to make the audience feel uncomfortable or uneasy. But this is a straight up fight scene, not a sophisticated tension building drama. And it also seemed like a poor choice to cross the line literally while Diablo was flying through the air, because that just interrupts the momentum of the motion. We're expecting that momentum to go left to right, left to right, but instead it starts left to right and then all of a sudden it's going right to left. They also, afterward, go right back to Incubus on the left and the squad on the right for Deadshot's attack, and they even have Diablo back on the right looking to the left when he gets up. So it really just seemed out of place to have the one shot that broke the rule. Anyway, what's more meaningful here is that the rest of the team all came to Diablo's defense right away. And Diablo then sees some photos of children and families, and that probably reminded him of his own family, so he gets even angrier and transforms into his full demon mode. This makes him Incubus's equal, and they start fighting straight up, big orange guy against big orange guy. I'm a bit surprised that Diablo didn't go to his demon form right away when he came forward because he said that he was going to show them who he truly is. But maybe he just needed to get fired up a bit more, getting kicked, and then seeing the photos. That led him to the demon mode. As Diablo is fighting Incubus, we quickly cut back down to see how the swimmers are doing. Croc is taking on the eyes himself and tells GQ to go on to the explosive. Once GQ is in position, Flag tells Diablo to get Incubus to the corner. Diablo then burns his hand right into Incubus's chest. This seems to weaken Incubus quite a bit, which might make him more susceptible to the explosion. The other reason that explosive charge might have worked when other military attacks failed is because the explosive charge took Incubus by surprise, so it was well-placed and well-timed. Diablo seems to have exerted a lot of his energy in weakening Incubus, and he returns to his human form as Incubus is pushing him down on the ground. Diablo actually tells Flag to blow it, so it's clearly a self-sacrifice from Diablo. Flag isn't sure, but Deadshot says to do it. This confirms what we've said for several scenes now, that Deadshot is really the leader of the squad now, and the fact that Flag is looking for input is very different than it was earlier in the movie. The explosive blows, and Enchantress and the machine are both weakened, so Incubus must have been a part of what was powering all of it, together with Enchantress. The squad walks forward, up to the destruction, and they're more saddened by Diablo's death than they are jubilant about Incubus's defeat. And we also want to acknowledge that GQ also made the ultimate sacrifice. It wasn't just Diablo. GQ's noble efforts here, 
put him in good company along with Colonel Hardy in Man of Steel and Steve Trevor in Wonder Woman, soldiers who were willing to give their lives in service of the mission. Thanks to King J at J Iscariot on Twitter for pointing out that parallel. And with Incubus out of the picture, we move into scene 43, which is the final fight with Enchantress. Deadshot tells her that she's next, and he's pretty confident, even though they don't have Diablo or any other explosive handy, so it's unclear how they might actually stop Enchantress. But she says that her spell is complete, so apparently it was a spell more than a machine, which I think is fine, given that she's a witch, but it's just weird that she called it a machine at the beginning, which is why we've been calling it a machine all the way through our analysis. I really don't know why they had that they worship machines now, so I'll build a machine to destroy them angle in the movie. It still has never quite clicked for me. And it's a spell now, so maybe it doesn't matter. But here she says that with her spell complete, she can defeat the military and then spread darkness across the earth and rule the world. And she's not joking about taking on the military. She uses Waller's classified knowledge to destroy several key military targets, including a secret facility and a military satellite. We did notice that there's a sort of lunar motif going on with Enchantress, where it goes from full moon to new moon again in this scene, but we're not really sure what to make of the lunar motif in terms of meaning. Anyway, the scene continues by answering that question about how they might stop Enchantress. Flag says that they need to cut out her heart. So the observant audience member will immediately think of Katana's sword for that purpose. Then Enchantress changes back into the smoky witch version, which I personally like quite a bit better, uh, with the horns and the glowing eyes and the smoke motif. But the fight scene overall still suffers a lot because it's very foggy and dirty, so you can't see much of what's going on. And although Enchantress's smoky teleportation is a nice connection to her character as it was set up in the beginning, the martial arts from Enchantress seems a bit out of place. But Katana eventually slashes through her and causes her to teleport away for a moment. This gives us time for a reminder that her spell is still wreaking havoc around the world, as we see it slicing through an aircraft carrier. These are pretty substantial displays of power and devastation, but they don't really pack an emotional punch, at least not for me, because we're only shown the objects from a distance, it doesn't show the people on board, and it definitely doesn't show people that we've grown to care about throughout the movie. But we suppose it's there to raise the stakes and really build things up to a climax. Enchantress reappears now with swords. So she may have transported away to retrieve the swords from some other location, just like she did uh, at the beginning with the Iranian binder. If this is the case, it's interesting that she chose swords because she could have gone and grabbed some more effective weapons. But anyway, the fight continues, still foggy, and now with Enchantress using double swords. Deadshot gets knocked aside and Harley ducks below Enchantress's sword strokes, and we see that Croc is returning from underneath. Then the filmmakers put in a little comedy bit that takes away from the tension of the fight in my view, but it is a sort of stereotypical Harley Quinn moment. She hits Enchantress in the back of the head with her bat. Then she says, uh-oh, as Enchantress turns around, and Enchantress kicks Harley in the crotch. Anyway, the next beat is Deadshot sliding in to save Flag's life, which is yet another nice continuation of their rivalry that has now evolved into respect and them saving one another. Then Katana tries her swords, Boomerang tries his boomerang, and Deadshot comes in with automatic pistols. But nothing is working too well. Then Croc arrives and grabs Enchantress and slams her into the base of the statue. So they're all involved now in this smoky fight, but they're not really getting any closer to cutting her heart out. Then the fight just abruptly ends, 
as Enchantress goes back up to her main position and says, enough, and she pulls away all their weapons. It's a bit of an odd moment, because why didn't she just do that earlier? Why was she trying to physically fight them at all? If we try to look for a rational answer to these questions, maybe it's just that she was upset about her brother's death, and so she wanted to let off some steam, or at least some smoke. It could also be that she never actually wanted to kill them, she just wanted to force them to worship her, and so she first tried to gain their allegiance by giving them what they really wanted in those visions, then she tried to defeat them physically and beat them into submission, but neither of those worked, so now she will take her final tact, which is to tell them that they've earned mercy and that they have one last opportunity to join her or die. Harley starts her con right away by talking to the team, not to Enchantress. She says to the team that maybe they should join Enchantress. Deadshot is not having it, saying that she's trying to take over the world. But Harley says, what's the world ever done for us anyway? It hates us. So this taps directly into the theme we've talked about from the start, of humanity's tendency, or at least America's tendency, to devalue criminals and view them as less than human. If criminals, like the squad, actually internalized this marginalization and devaluation, then they would agree with Harley and would be willing to sell out the world or celebrate its destruction. And Harley is kind of right that the world hasn't done much for them. But, as we'll see, she's going to save the world anyway, which shows that the world is wrong about them. They may be bad guys, but they can still do good, and they should still have a chance at redemption. Having started her con with the team, Harley now steps forward to continue her con directly with Enchantress. She now makes it personal, saying that she wants her puddin' back. And Enchantress says that she can return her puddin' to her. Enchantress steps forward and asks Harley to bow and serve beneath my feet. Harley does kneel, but she's actually just positioning herself right by Katana's sword, which had been pulled forward onto the ground by Enchantress just a moment earlier. And to Enchantress's surprise, Harley says that Enchantress's mistake was messing with her friends, and she cuts out the heart. This also means that for both Incubus and Enchantress, they were defeated by the bonds formed by the squad. Diablo was protecting his new family when he defeated Incubus, and Harley is protecting her friends when she defeats Enchantress. This is the culmination of the dominant theme of the movie, that friendship is more powerful than leverage. Waller tried to use leverage all along, but it didn't work as well as the actual friendship and mutual connections made by the squad. And even here at the end, Enchantress tried to manipulate and force the squad into subservience, but that wasn't as powerful as the friendship they had together. A couple of other quick points about Harley's moment here. I really like how the accent Margot Robbie used worked with these lines. It really did seem like a Harley Quinn delivery that was unique from any other character. And we also thought it was very fitting that this group of criminals used deception as their final move. This makes the squad distinct from typical superheroes like Superman and Wonder Woman, who in their film's respective climaxes used strength and determination or the power of love to win the day. Those are very heroic kinds of things. The squad uses a less noble tactic. They use this con, but it still gets the job done. Now, with Enchantress's heart out, they can end the threat. And to make sure the audience is following along, Flag says, her heart's out, we can end this. This leads to the big finish, which the filmmakers designed to involve several squad members. Flag pulls out an explosive and gives it to Croc, who has the strength to throw it into the machine that is causing all the destruction. 
Deadshot calls to Harley, who throws him her pistol, and then these two throws are shown in slow motion. And some people have called the slow motion a bit unnecessary, but I think it was just meant to really emphasize that this was the finish. An enchantress, even without her heart, still has one last-ditch effort. We see her eyes glow, and the implication is that she's feeding another vision to Deadshot. This time it's not a vision of Deadshot killing Batman, it's something that cuts more to the core for him. It's his daughter, Zoe. She's telling him not to do it, that the only way for them to be together is if he doesn't pull the trigger. It's a direct echo of the earlier moment when she really did step in between Deadshot and Batman, and she did talk him out of killing Batman. But in this case, it's not a genuine appeal, asking Deadshot to not kill a hero. It's a false appeal, asking him not to destroy a villain's evil spell. It's just Enchantress's desperate last move. Deadshot yells in determination as he tries to push past the mind games, and then he fires the pistol. The pistol's barrel rotates from hate to love, and the blast destroys Enchantress's machine or spell. The beam stops, and the debris falls down in a circle around the station. And speaking of love with the barrel chamber switching to love, we also wanted to reiterate a couple points about love that we've made in our prior episodes. The main characters on the squad all have love, which seems to be central in their chance for redemption and in their ability to connect with one another. Floyd loves his daughter, Harley loves the Joker, Diablo loves his family, Katana loves her husband, and Flag loves June. These loves separate them from the true villains of the movie, especially from Amanda Waller, who is not shown to have any love or genuine human connections at all. She just thirsts for power and control. And then with Enchantress, one can argue that she loves her brother, but if you think about it, she mainly seems to use her brother. She frees him to gain strength because she wants to use it to conquer the world. She has her brother heal her after Waller stabs her heart, and then she uses him at the end as a sort of security guard and as a way to help power her machine or spell. So if you view Enchantress as just using Incubus toward her own ends, then that makes her more similar to Waller than the squad, and it would make her evil rather than just bad. But if you look at Enchantress's grief when Incubus is killed, and her care for Incubus and bringing him back to life, then you might say that she does love her brother. In this case, yes, it is love, but it is not a love that extends to humanity. It's kind of a selfish love, and it's a love that she can have while still wanting to lay waste to the planet and take over mankind. So that's different than the squad love, where they empathize with one another, and they end up actually saving the world, because they have their love and they recognize the love in other people. The way that we have phrased the love theme in the past is that love can be the basis for human connection. But Enchantress's form of love, if she has it at all, is not a basis for human connection, because she holds it while still destroying humanity and wanting to make it subservient to her. In closing, these two scenes kind of encapsulate the entire movie. There are some fairly pedestrian action sequences, nothing special, and there are some questionable editing decisions, but it features an interesting cast of characters who have some heart and some nice resolutions to their personal arcs. Although Enchantress's design and motivations are a bit muddled, the filmmakers nevertheless did a good job of designing the climax so that it involved key moments from Harley Quinn and Deadshot, the two co-leads of the movie. 
So that is our analysis for scenes 42 and 43 of Suicide Squad. We just have a couple more scenes, which we will cover pretty quickly in the next few days. And to close out this episode, we wanted to point out that these scenes we just covered have several visual and thematic connections to other JLU movies. There's the U.S. soldier sacrificing himself to stop the big bad, which we mentioned as being parallel to Man of Steel and Wonder Woman. There's also a magic sword being used to cut off a giant monster's hand, only to have the hand grow back, just like we saw in Batman v Superman. There's also a guy shoving his hand through another guy's chest, like we saw in the nightmare scene from BVS. And there's Harley recognizing the bad in the world, that the world's never done anything for them, but she still goes and saves the world, um, kind of like Diana, who recognizes the good and the bad, but still saves mankind. And then there's Nick's personal favorite, which is the sacrifice of Diablo, paralleling the sacrifice of Superman. This goes to show that even a convicted felon, who in the past committed this horrible act of killing his wife and children, can still be just as heroic as the iconic and monumental hero that is Superman. It goes to show that we shouldn't disregard the potential, even of those who have done bad things in the past. And we also shouldn't disregard the power of human connection and empathy to bring people back from dark places. Anyway, that's enough for right now. As we close out our Suicide Squad analysis this week, you can also check out the Suicide Squad cast and the Man of Steel Answers podcast. And as usual, thank you very much for listening.